Welcome to Liquidity. This is Doug Clinton, one of the partners at Loop Ventures. And on Liquidity, we talk all things related to venture liquidity. Today, we have a special guest who really lives at the heart of liquidity. It's Jeff Thomas, Senior Vice President at NASDAQ and Head of Western U.S. Listings and Capital Markets. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Doug. Thank you for being here. And to start, maybe just tell us a little bit about your role and responsibilities at NASDAQ. Sure. So I oversee NASDAQ's effort on the West Coast and kind of help companies as they're looking to navigate the capital markets, whether it's as private companies providing liquidity on a secondary basis. We help companies go public. And then once they are public, we offer a number of products and services to help them optimize their investor relations and governance functions. And so we've got different teams out here on the West Coast that help companies with all of those efforts. And I oversee all those different teams. And so I can imagine you've been a pretty busy person this year. It's been a very big year for tech IPOs in particular, a lot of West Coast companies. And even though there's been maybe some more recent disappointment amongst investors around the performance of some of those IPOs, it still feels like the market is pretty robust. So all in all, how would you judge the health of the IPO markets right now? Yeah, I think it's been an extremely busy year for us. We've raised over $25 billion in proceeds through NASDAQ IPOs this year, including some of the largest IPOs over the past couple of years. So it's been an exciting year. As you mentioned, some of the activity in Q4 has tailed off a bit, but we are extremely busy right now working with a number of companies that are planning IPOs for the first half of 2020. And then one of the things that is kind of hanging out there with regards to the IPO market, is the presidential election for 2020. So there's a lot of talk of companies wanting to get out early next year ahead of the presidential election so that they can avoid any potential volatility or uncertainty that comes along with that in election year. I know when we were on the sell side, we always talked about with clients and the buy side, the sort of idea of the IPO window being open. So it sounds like you feel the window is still open and probably will stay open ahead of at least the presidential elections. And then we'll see kind of where the world goes from there. I think that's right. I mean, we've definitely seen a couple deals delay or pull back in Q4 here. And so I don't know if the window is wide open right now. But we still have a lot of companies that are in full-on preparation mode. They have their timeline and their plans around when they're going to launch in Q1. So it definitely doesn't feel like those companies are slowing down. When you look at it, IPOs in 2019 are still up around 15% on the year as a group. So I do think that investors are still bullish on them and still looking forward to some of the new offerings. But that, of course, against a backdrop where the overall markets are also at all-time highs. I think one of the critical things we always look at is the volatility index or the VIX, which has stayed below 20 for the vast majority of 2019. So obviously, if we start to see a bunch of volatility in the market in 2020, that would slow things down. You know, you look back to 2016, the last election year, we started off the year with a big round of volatility due to some global growth concerns around China. And then you had Brexit come up and, you know, a lot of different things that went into a pretty volatile year that year. And then, of course, ending with the presidential election. So that year, we actually saw about half as many IPOs on NASDAQ as we've done already this year. So there's definitely a slowdown the last time we went through an election cycle with a number of other factors kind of weighing in on that. That's a really great reference point. And maybe 
as we think about this sort of window being open and some of the trends in IPOs, I know one of the big talks of the Valley has been this excitement around direct listings. We've had news that we've talked about previously on the show about Airbnb, thinking about a direct listing. We've had DoorDash, I think just a week ago, news come out that they are considering maybe a direct listing. And obviously, Bill Gurley has been really pushing the topic. But from your perspective, and this is really targeted toward tech companies, do you think that direct listings are going to be a real option over the next year or so? Or do you think it's more of this kind of a niche product for only a few companies? It's the number one topic we're getting asked about right now by folks out here in the Valley. You mentioned a number of the high-profile VCs are very bullish on this and encouraging their companies to explore this as an option. So we're getting a lot of inbound questions from companies and especially tech companies in the venture-backed ecosystem on this topic. And when we kind of take a step back and look at why do companies want to consider a direct listing, one, I think they view the opportunity to eliminate the lockup for both their venture investors as well as their employees as a huge benefit. If you look at how much more quickly the buy side can establish a position in your stock since there's going to be more supply available. I think companies kind of view that also as a benefit. But then when you look at some of the considerations, it puts a lot more of the work of the listing process onto the company's executives to get out, connect with the buy side, tell the story. The company has to be very comfortable providing guidance to the street much earlier in their life cycle than they would be. And then it also just comes down to, does the company need to raise capital or not? Because currently in a direct listing, the company can't raise capital through that transaction. And so you've got to be in a pretty strong position in terms of the balance sheet for it to even be an option. I want to touch more on that capital topic. But before we go there, you mentioned some of the work that falls on the company executives and the necessity of providing guidance. Do you think that direct listings really cater to a certain type of company? Like the narrative, I think, has been, well, we've seen Spotify, we've seen Slack. They're sort of these quote-unquote brand name companies go. Do you think that direct listings work for companies that maybe don't necessarily have that brand name but can do what you mentioned with the company executives really getting out on the road and providing that guidance? Yeah, I think one of the false narratives that we've seen has been you have to have a strong brand name as far as consumers go. I don't think that's the case. I think that any company that's going to have good coverage and pickup by the buy side and specifically institutional investors can consider this option. So if you're an analyst at Fidelity or T. Rowe and you're covering the enterprise software space, you're going to cover and know who Slack is, right? And there's a long list of other private enterprise software companies out there that those same analysts are going to know and be covering for years. And frankly, maybe they're already invested through private rounds of funding. So I think it's less important that you have a good consumer name because we still continue to see a pretty small percentage of the overall deal size, even in Slack and Spotify, going into consumer or retail investors. It's still largely going to be driven by institutional investors. So what's going to be really important is that the institutional investors understand your business. They understand where you fit in competitively. They understand if you have a good, strong moat around your business, what that is. And then it comes down to the company having the time and the talent to get out, educate those investors on the business model, provide that forward-looking guidance once their registration statement's effective so that investors can go out and make informed decisions about what price they would pay for the shares in a direct listing. 
That makes sense. You know, the education thing is something that we've been really excited about. And this is sort of the hammer and the nail thing. But as former sales side analysts, we've always felt like education was really a big part of our role when we helped a company in its IPO process. And with a direct listing, it feels like that process and sort of education beyond what the company provides has maybe not yet been filled yet. Do you think there's any opportunity there? I do. I mean, if you look at it, you know, some of the higher profile direct listings that have gone out have had far fewer financial advisors on the cover than a typical IPO. So, you know, you look at like Lyft, I think they had over 20 investment banks on the cover versus Slack, I think had three financial advisors. And so you have far fewer banks that have an active role in the offering. And so then you have to look at, okay, how do you then create the incentive and the right structure for the investment banks to pick up coverage of those names once they go public. And what's that process look like? With a direct listing, the sell side is going to have the exact same access to the investor day and the financials and the guidance that the buy side's getting at the same time. And so then how do you kind of build up that following and make sure that the sell side is fully engaged, given that they're not going to have a formal role in the offering or at least a smaller one? Yeah, that's one we're going to keep following near and dear to our hearts. You mentioned the financial advisors that we've seen on the books for some of these direct listings. And earlier on, you talked about one of the benefits from directs being the elimination of the lockup, which I actually think is an underappreciated benefit. It hasn't been talked as much about in the media. The thing that the media seems to talk more about with these listings is the pricing. So getting this IPO priced without the kind of first day pop that we always talk about, and then the fees from the bank. So from your perspective, the pricing benefits to a direct listing and those fees, the fee discussion, how much do you think that factors into the attractiveness of these listings versus you know the lockup that you mentioned earlier? I think it's much more the lockup. If you look at the pricing dynamics, you know, one of the things I like to say is every IPO is a direct listing. The traditional IPO, you go out and the company sells shares to an underwriter who then places them with investors the night before, and then they come in the next day and they open the stock on NASDAQ through the opening cross. So all you're doing in a direct listing is cutting out that first step of the underwriters going out and placing those shares. The pricing in the opening process is exactly the same for a direct listing versus an IPO. You're just allowing all shareholders to participate in that. So I think you're going to find that market-based price through either offering. It is interesting. The media seems to comment on the pop for a direct listing versus the reference price, which is really just a number that the financial advisors are required to put out there to help inform largely retail investors, similar to the range in a traditional IPO. But because the company's not raising capital at that price, the fact that people are reporting, oh, it's up or down versus that reference price, in my mind, is kind of immaterial. So I do think you know, the major benefit there is going to be the fact that you're going to get to that market-based price with a wider range of shares faster. And then in terms of the fees, I mentioned there's fewer banks that are listed on the cover. Those banks, at least on a couple of the high-profile direct listings we've seen so far, have still managed to maintain basically the same amount of pricing per deal as they get on a traditional IPO. What you're really doing is eliminating the fees that you're paying on that wider syndicate of banks since they aren't going to play the same role. But in either case, I don't think the primary motivation for any of the companies that have considered this is to say, hey, we want to reduce our fees here. They're talking about how do we get more shares to the market faster? How do we get to that market-driven price? And how do we allow all of our investors and employees to get to market sooner? We agree 100% with you on that perspective on fees and 
just for reference for the audience, Spotify paid, I think it was around $35 million in fees. Slack paid around 22. And we did some of the math on recent IPOs. And I think this was about 25 of the biggest IPOs of the last 18 months. The average company paid about a million dollars in fees per $26 million in capital raised in a public offering. So basically, you do the math, Spotify could have equivalently raised something like a billion dollars on the fee base it paid. And I think Slack was like 750 million or something like that. So to your point, it, it feels like the fees, even though I think a lot of times in articles that talk about direct listings, they mention fees as an advantage. It really hasn't been that different yet. Yeah. And, and when you think about what they're actually doing, the financial advisor versus the underwriter, that's different. So obviously they're not participating as much in the roadshow. They can't go out and market the shares directly to investors, but they're definitely advising the companies on which investors they should be reaching out to and having a hand in how they're positioning the story. But then when it comes to that opening cross on day one, they're very much playing the same role that the stabilization agent would play, with the exception of they don't have the underwriter's over-allotment option, which is usually known as the green shoe. So they don't have the ability to go in and play the stabilization role through the green shoe, but they're definitely still very involved in building the book, talking to buyers and sellers, helping to bring all the supply and demand into the market. And so the way we facilitate that at NASDAQ is through a piece of software called the Book Viewer. So we actually give the lead financial advisor or advisors that the company hires access to that full order book so they can see all the buy orders and sell orders coming in. And then we simulate an auction every second so that they can see the indicative price, the number of paired shares throughout the morning. And then it's up to the company to designate a single lead financial advisor who can then say, all right, we're ready to open the stock. We close the gate, run the auction one last time. And then that sets that opening price. And then the stock opens for trading regular way, which is exactly the same process we go through for an opening cross on an IPO, with the only exception being that that lead financial advisor in the case of an IPO, the stabilization agent can't then layer in their own orders into the book to help stabilize the stock. Makes perfect sense. And so from the NASDAQ's perspective, since you essentially are working through the same process, do you prefer a direct listing versus a traditional IPO for any reason, or is it sort of same thing for you? It really doesn't make any difference for us. The fees are exactly the same. Our role is very much the same, especially when it comes to the financial advisors. So we're really here in a very neutral spot to kind of be a good sounding board for companies that are looking at both options and kind of saying, hey, here's the pros, here's the cons, you know, here's the considerations you should have, because we really don't have a preference in terms of how companies come to market. Earlier on, we talked very briefly about the fact that direct listings currently you can't use to raise capital. You can't raise capital in conjunction with a direct, which seems like probably the most obvious disadvantage to doing a direct listing. Jeff, do you think that we see a process emerge eventually where a capital raise is incorporated into a direct listing? And if so, what do you think that might look like? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely something that we've been asked a lot about by a number of companies. It's something we're actively considering. It would require some rule changes to the way these listings are executed. And then I think there's some really interesting questions around the topic of liability in terms of, you know, in a traditional IPO, the banks take on underwriter liability. So if they go out and price the IPO, you know, they can be held accountable if something wasn't properly disclosed. 
And so I think that's going to be at the heart of the discussion as we kind of move forward and look at this, you know, what is going to be the role of the financial advisors in that? And then how does the liability get distributed? But I definitely think, you know, we see enough demand and there's enough interest that over time, we think that'll be something that we can find a way to getting to. One of the sort of workarounds that we've heard about for raising capital sort of as part of a direct listing process is just to raise a big primary round on the private markets before you do your direct and then essentially you sort of top off before you go public. What would you say would be the advantages to doing the raise with the direct listing versus just doing this sort of workaround because there is so much money in the private markets? You know, is that going to be good enough to serve the purposes for companies that need capital? Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. There is a ton of private capital available. So as long as that remains the case and companies can go out and build up their balance sheets ahead of a direct listing, then you're really just separating the two, right? You're saying, okay, we're going to do our capital raising event here in the private markets, and then we'll go and execute a direct listing to create that listing, get that listing on a a national stock exchange. I think the only trade-off would be, are there any sources of capital that would not participate in that private round of funding, which again speaks to the availability of capital? And then would anything happen between those two points? So between the point at which you execute your private placement and the time you do the direct listing, does something materially happen to the business? Those would really be the considerations of why one would be better or worse than the other. If you could execute both simultaneously and bring in more sources of capital and eliminate any risk around developments post that, that'd be a vote for the direct listing. As long as you have enough availability capital and you don't perceive any risk between that private round and the timeline to a direct listing, then I think both would be good options. One thing we've been kicking around with this idea of doing the private raise ahead of the direct listing is we've seen this world where companies have been waiting longer to go public. And some of the former return that used to go to public market investors, growth investors, has now shifted to these late stage private investors. And it feels almost like this idea of the sort of top up before you do a direct listing is almost like you shift the IPO pop now to the private markets. Do you think that is a realistic way to think about it? And is that how investors in these rounds are going to think about it too, where they want to see some sort of return in the short time between their investment and the direct listing? But obviously, they're not going to see two or three X markups like you see maybe in a earlier private capital raise. Yeah, I think whether you're raising the capital through a private round, through a traditional IPO, or in a capital raise with a direct listing, fundamentally what the company and specifically the CFO is signing up for when they raise that round of funding is a particular growth profile, right? So if you're out there raising money at $20 a share, you are inherently communicating to those new investors, I'm now going to sign up for this level of growth, which is going to get you your expected return over whatever their investment horizon is, whether it's 6, 12, you know, 24 months. And so I think that's a really important thing to consider when we talk about optimizing the price, specifically around an IPO. I talk to a lot of CFOs who say, look, I understand the VCs want to maximize price on day one to minimize dilution, right? But for me as the CFO, that's not always what I'm working towards, Right. If I'm going to price my IPO at 20 versus 30, that's setting up a very different expectation on what the company is going to be able to deliver on over the next four to eight quarters. And so sometimes it's actually the company saying, hey, I don't want to maximize price on day one. 
I actually want to set myself up where now I can have a realistic growth path versus if you kind of go all out and try to get every last dollar on day one, whether it's a private round, an IPO or a direct listing, you're then baking in a much higher hurdle for yourself to hit over the next four to eight quarters. So I do think it's important to kind of think about what perspective you're looking at it from, whether it's the existing investors, the company's management, or the new investors. And oftentimes, you know, we spend probably most of our time with company management trying to understand their goals and perspectives. I think that's a really important narrative for the sort of people that are considering and talking about direct listings to remember. And I know, again, I'll just refer back to some of our time as sell-side analysts. We would say some of the same things you just mentioned, Jeff, which is this idea of sort of having dry powder in terms of setting expectations with buy-side investors. We always said the first rule is you can't miss your first quarter out of the gate. And you always want to try to beat expectations over your first year as a public company. You just want to set that track record with your institutional investors. And so, you know, I think it's funny you mentioned VCs want to maximize price for themselves on an IPO, but they would expect the same thing. If you kind of shift the clock back two years, they would want a management team that set expectations reasonably for themselves and then were able to kind of beat them over time. And then the share price, of course, eventually accrues and catches up to whatever the business is delivering on. So I'm really glad that you sort of brought up that perspective because I don't think we've been talking as much about that in this overall discussion with direct listings. Well, especially as the shift focuses from kind of growth at all costs to profitable growth, you've seen a number of the recent IPOs kind of go out and say, hey, we're going to achieve profitability sooner in our life than we had discussed when we went public. As we talk to companies that are considering going public in 2020, there's definitely a lot more focus on when is the company going to get to profitability? When are they going to get to cash flow break even? Because that's always one of the trade-offs that the management team has to consider. You can go and invest a lot in growth now, and if people are willing to be patient and wait for that profitability to come out farther out there, that can be the right decision for your business. But if investors are now looking to say, okay, we want to see more certainty around when companies are going to get to cash flow break-even and profitability, you know, the company's going to make very different investment decisions, and that's going to obviously change their capital-raising requirements. So we do think that that's going to be an interesting part of the narrative as we go into 2020 and will, of course, affect as companies think about how much capital they need to go raise, whether it's a private placement or an IPO. I think that's a really important point. Let me shift gears just slightly, which is we're talking about sort of the amount of capital in the private markets. And we've talked a little bit about how companies have been waiting longer to go public. NASDAQ also has a very active business in the secondary markets with NASDAQ private markets. And I know that you've been involved in that world very much in the past. Do you see an uptick in companies as these horizons sort of get more drawn out looking for these secondary liquidity solutions? That's right. We've now done over $25 billion in secondary liquidity for pre-IPO companies through NASDAQ private market. So it's definitely a growing trend for us. When you look at why companies are providing pre-IPO liquidity, it's really either to provide liquidity to their employees or to their early investors. In the case of the employees, it's really a question of how do you attract and retain talent in a very competitive hiring environment, especially out here in the Valley. You have a lot of well-capitalized, profitable tech companies out here that are willing to offer liquid equity to the engineers out here. And so if you're hiring in engineering talent and asking them to wait around now, 
up to 10 years for an IPO, you need a way to provide a little bit of liquidity to put some real value into that equity grant that you gave them. And then the other topic is, of course, investors. So it used to be companies would raise their first round of funding and they'd go public if they're successful three to five years after that. So that was a reasonable time horizon for an angel investor, an early round venture investor. Now, the fact that companies are taking you know over 10 years to go public, those early investors oftentimes are looking for liquidity as well. And so the NASDAQ private market platform provides a way for companies to run controlled liquidity programs to help their early investors or their broad base of employees to get some liquidity along the long march to going public. It doesn't sound like you think that the supply there will slow up anytime soon. No, I think there's always going to be a demand for liquidity, whether it's from employees or investors. I think the bigger question is, if we get into an area where you see a market correction and then there's less demand for you know companies going public, that'll likely filter through to the secondary market as well, since we see those two are pretty tightly correlated. We see a lot of investors that are willing to go in and buy you know common stock from employees to these pre-IPO companies as a bet that those companies are going to make it to the public markets. Because in the case of an IPO, all of the preferred stock that the company has issued converts to common, and therefore investors coming in and buying common stock are going to get a good return. In the case of an acquisition, where if a company has raised preferred rounds of funding, especially if they have a, a multiple liquidation preference, then it's less certain what that common stock is going to be worth. And so really, I think it's the demand side of the equation that we're going to be watching closely. In terms of the supply, there's a lot of companies now that have pretty healthy valuations in the private markets. All of those companies have both investors and employees that are counting on their equity stakes in those companies to become you know, significant over time. And so the demand for liquidity from those groups, I think, is going to be there for sure. So let me ask two last questions. One, to sort of tie everything up that we've spoken about, you know, NASDAQ has built really great solutions for both the private and public markets. We just talked about the NASDAQ private markets product. We've talked about direct listings and IPOs. How important is it just strategically? And how do you think about maybe kind of the longer term vision for NASDAQ as a provider of liquidity to have all of these different products to meet different customer needs over time? The way we look at it is we want to make sure we have solutions for every stage of a company's life cycle and making sure we're providing them best-in-class technology and data to access the capital markets. So even at the earliest stage out here in San Francisco, we have the NASDAQ Entrepreneurial Center, which is a nonprofit that we set up that provides free education to founders. And then if you go to the other side of the equation for the mega caps of the world, we provide those best-in-class investor relations products and data sets to help companies kind of manage their shareholder base. So whether you're a startup or a mega cap, we're looking to be there to support companies through all phases of their growth. And we just think that's a really critical role that we play, you know, that kind of grew out of our histories in exchange. But now as we morph into technology and data provider into the capital markets, we think it's critical that we're there to support companies at all phases. And that leads, I think, beautifully into kind of my last question, which was, we talked briefly before we started around some of the efforts that the NASDAQ has in finance reform. And in particular, again, we've talked about this idea that companies have been waiting longer to go public. Part of the reason is private capital in the markets, but part of the reason is this regulatory burden that comes with going public has always been kind of a topic of conversation. And that's one thing, one area where you are helping drive reform and helping companies deal with 
the different phases of their life cycle. So could you tell me a little bit about how you are working on reform in that front? Yeah, when Adina Friedman took over as CEO of NASDAQ in 2017, one of her first initiatives was to launch something we call Project Revitalize, which was kind of our blueprint for capital markets reform to make the U.S. capital markets friendlier to companies that are looking to go public. Because when you look at the effect of the fact that companies are waiting longer to go public, it means that retail and Main Street investors are missing out on a lot of the gains that historically they were able to participate in. Because while there's a ton of capital in the private markets, that capital is heavily focused and funded by institutional investors, including family offices, sovereign wealth funds, and large private equity firms. And so that source of capital is typically not available to retail and Main Street investors to participate in that growth. So we think it's absolutely critical that we in the U.S. make sure that you have a vibrant and thriving public market where companies are excited to go public. And so some of the things that we've done is look at what are some of the regulatory reforms that we think would be necessary to make the capital markets a more welcoming place. We recently had a big success with our friends at the SEC who decided to enact updated reforms for proxy advisory firms. And those are firms that help institutional investors vote their shares. And one of the things we've heard loud and clear from our listed companies and prospective listed companies is that the weight and the influence that those firms have is outsized to their role in the markets. And they also have a bit of a conflicted business model where they're working on one hand on behalf of the investors to help them understand how they should vote their shares. But then they're also coming to companies and asking them to sign up as consulting clients to help them understand their models. And we fundamentally just don't think that that is a tenable solution and something we hear constantly from our companies that it's a big pain point. So the SEC has now kind of reaffirmed that institutional investors are responsible as fiduciaries to do their own work around how they're going to vote their shares. And even if they rely on a proxy advisory firm, they need to make sure that those proxy advisory firms are doing all the right due diligence. And then some of the other important parts of the guidance is that companies should have the ability to go in and question the way the proxy advisory firms are building their models, how they're coming to their conclusions, and have the opportunity to disagree with that in a public forum so that investors can make more informed decisions. So that's just one example of one of the key topics that we think has made the public markets a little bit less hospitable for growth companies. And you know we're excited to keep working on the initiative to keep making the U.S. capital markets more welcoming to all companies of all sizes. I think that's a great place to end. It's a very important mission. And I think we had a great education today on all the great things that NASDAQ is working on. So Jeff, thank you for joining us on Liquidity. Thanks very much, Doug. 